And good morning to you in the traditional service. We are streaming today, and we are delighted to do this together as we explore God's Word. After a wonderful Sunday, and I want to say thank you for celebrating my 25th last Sunday, we are now today returning to our series that we call Restored, where we're looking at what it means, what it can possibly look like to be difference makers, to be agents of restoration who by the power of the Holy Spirit uh, seek to bring renewal, reconciliation, redemption, restoration uh, to the people and places around us. So that's what we're doing. We're, we're looking at how we can be these agents of restoration, how as I said a couple of weeks ago, we can be difference makers and To that end, we're looking at one of the greatest difference makers in the Old Testament, a layman, a Jewish layman by the name of Nehemiah. And this morning, we come uh, to the amazing subject of generosity. And I say amazing because Nehemiah's generosity in the book of Nehemiah, this Old Testament book, is absolutely incredible. It's so very encouraging. You see, to be a difference maker, if difference makers are anything, what we discover in our passage today is that we are generous. And frankly, if you think about it, at the 30,000-foot level, it has to be that way. Contrary to what people think about the Bible, you know, the Bible is narrow, it's restrictive, it's harsh. Actually, one of the ways to look at the Bible is that the Bible is the greatest story in the world on generosity, compassion, mercy, care for the poor. Uh, From the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end of the Bible, the Bible oozes notions of compassion and generosity. Now, it shouldn't uh, surprise us uh, that's central to what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, to be a difference maker, is generosity. Because after all, we as believers in Jesus Christ have been created in God's image, redeemed by God's Son, and our God is the most generous being in the universe. I mean, what is... Uh, the life of Jesus Christ, the death of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, if it's not uh, the greatest, the most vivid illustration in human history of generosity. To be a believer in Jesus Christ is to be a difference maker. To be a difference maker is to be generous. And this morning, I want to show you what that looks like in Nehemiah's life. And along the way, what Nehemiah does for us is he opens the door to the path of joy. Because Paul tells us in the New Testament that God loves a cheerful giver. Cheerful and joyful and giver are two sides of the same coin. And I want you to know that in your hearts. And so this morning, would you stand with me out of reverence for God's word, as we return to Nehemiah chapter 5, and we pick it up beginning in verse 14. Moreover, 
from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. Now, Artaxerxes was the king of Persia, and Nehemiah is writing. This is really Nehemiah's journal. So Nehemiah is speaking, and he says, When I, Nehemiah, was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah until his 32nd year, 12 years. Now note, with these years and the correlation of the king of Persia, Nehemiah is writing history, not fable. History that's been verified by archaeology, by uh, Persian history, uh, by Jewish sources. Neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. That's a big statement. We'll come back to that. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels. We don't know exactly how much that is, 40 shekels of silver, but it's, Nehemiah mentions it because it's not an insignificant amount. They took it from the people in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people, but out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on the wall, to rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem, to protect Jerusalem. All my men were assembled there for the work. And then he has this parenthetical comment. We did not acquire any land. We did not act in a greedily manner. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each one, each day rather, one ox, six choice sheep. Now try saying that quickly. And some poultry were prepared for me, and every ten days an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people. You may be seated. I want to encourage you to fasten your seatbelt. There is a lot here, a lot of wonderful things here. We're going to begin by looking at several different aspects of Nehemiah's generosity, two uh, specifically. And so what we're going to do is go back to verses 14 and 15 for starters. We read that neither uh, my brothers uh, nor I ate the food allotted to the governor, but the earlier governors did exactly what we are not doing. Now, what this is about is about Persian policy. Persian policy dictated that governors charge their constituents a tax, a tax uh, to fund the governor's lavish lifestyle, the lavish food that would be served at their table, the lavish way they enjoyed their household. But if you go back to verse 3 in chapter 5, we learn that there was a famine in Jerusalem as Nehemiah is rebuilding the walls, leading the charge and rebuilding the walls. So because there's a famine, Nehemiah refuses to do what the previous governors did. He refuses to charge his people a tax because Nehemiah did not want to live in luxury when his people were living in poverty. So here we begin to get a sense of what generosity is according to Nehemiah. Generosity isn't just being aware that there's poverty or a famine. Uh, generosity is more than just having a visceral or emotional response. Oh, that's too bad. 
Generosity is proactively stepping in and lifting the burdens of people uh, that are struggling. And here in Nehemiah, that involves a financial lifting, a financial support. Now here we are 2,500 years later. And this aspect of generosity, I'm talking about lifting burdens, you lifting the burdens of people around you, uh, requires the same self-denial, the same sacrifice, the same mercy and compassion and love that Nehemiah displays and ultimately is most vividly displayed in the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ, which is what the elements of the table before us as we come to communion illustrate and picture for us. But let me continue. This is Paul in Galatians. And notice the verb, carry. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If I'm reading chapter 5 correctly, carry means becoming aware, responding in your heart, and then stepping up and proactively lifting other people's burdens. Now this is why, uh, this is one of the main reasons why we exist as a church. It's why any church exists. That we might lift the burdens of others. Uh, This is why we are so invested, for example, in our West Chicago Pointe ministry. Uh, Why we are invested in in, in other, other Wonderful aspects of global compassion, as you just saw in the video. Uh, Why we are so deeply involved in in supporting men and women of God in in their work, their global work around the world. It's why almost 30% of the revenue that we receive at Wheaton Bible Church, we invest in the local and the global cause of, of Christ. Why? Because we want to carry other people's burdens. We want to lift their burdens as we lift up Jesus Christ. And so before I continue, I want to ask you this question. Whose burdens are you lifting? Not just that you feel bad, not just that you're aware, but that you're coming alongside. Now let's go on. Uh, Because there's a second aspect of this. And we see this in uh, verse 17. Nehemiah says, uh, and by the way, I had 150 Jews and officials eating at my table as well as those who came from the surrounding uh, uh, nations. So what is generosity? Generosity is not only lifting burdens, verses 14 and 15, it's giving sacrifice. Officially, we see this in verse 17. We just saw that as well as it spills over into verse 18. So we lift burdens. We become aware of burdens. We step in, but we also give, and we give generously. We give sacrificially. Now, I have a confession. I have a love-hate relationship with Costco. Now, when you have a large family like we do, Costco becomes a a, a wonderful necessity. 
And I, I love the, the money Rhonda saves when she goes to Costco. But you know what I hate? I mean, you can't buy one single little bag of potato chips for our grandkids. You have to buy 500. <laughs> because everything comes in bundles of 50, 100, or, or, or 500. But that's what it takes to feed a large group of people like our family. But look at Nehemiah's large group. I want you to think about this. Every day for 12 years, what is Nehemiah doing? He's feeding 150 to 200 uh, people. And because there's a famine in the land, Nehemiah knows uh, that that's not inexpensive. I mean, food prices are inflated. That's what happens in a, in a famine. And what Nehemiah is doing is paying for this out of his own pocket. Let me back up. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor. I, I, I never, I, I funded this out of my own pocket. Now let me make two observations. What this tells us is number one, Nehemiah was wealthy. And number two, Nehemiah was incredibly generous. In the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, but instead store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Jesus is not saying renounce your wealth. He's saying relocate it. Every day for 12 years, Nehemiah is relocating his wealth. Every day for 12 years, Nehemiah is giving to the kingdom of God sacrificially because he's feeding the leaders, he's uh, feeding fellow Jews so that they continue the work of the restoration of the city of Jerusalem and the people of Jerusalem. And what we see going on here is absolutely incredible. I think it's one of the great illustrations in the Old Testament of sacrificial generosity. And can you believe he didn't have Costco? I'll pay for it. I'll underwrite it. And let me just say something. Nehemiah did not mind being the largest donor in Jerusalem. There was none of this, hey, I don't want people to get overly dependent on me. I'm going to hold back. And Nehemiah was all in. And he said, if other people are going to follow me, great. If they're not, man, we've got to get these walls built. I so believe in the cause of, uh, of God or today in, in Jesus Christ that I'm going to step up and I'm going to give everything I have that I'm able to give. And one of the things that strikes me here is that Nehemiah did this freely. Generosity, by definition, can't be coerced. It can't be forced. It can't be a show. Because generosity is you freely disadvantaging yourself for the advantage of others. 
I've bumped into several stories of this uh, just recently. It's a couple who give generously to their local church. But they also support a, a, a smaller, sometimes struggling church, at least financially, in another state. So that church, that small church, can be a lighthouse in that community. It's a high school soccer team. This is a cool story. It's a high school soccer team that recently won a high school soccer tournament. And they gave the uh, uh, proceeds of their winnings, a $1,000 check, to Pointe. They just donated it. It's families in our church, and Rhonda and I did this for years, who invite people who are in transition or maybe struggling to live with them for a period of time. It's hundreds and hundreds of you here at Wheaton Bible Church that give consistently and faithfully and generously to the cause of Christ here through the ministries of our church. And I thank you for that. It's parents who teach their children at an early age to set aside 10%, what the Old Testament calls a tithe, for Jesus. Because those parents do the same thing and even more. Generosity is lifting burdens. Generosity is giving sacrificially. Because difference makers understand they are gospel patrons. Fueling the work of the kingdom of God with their finances. And the amount is irrelevant. I remember Jesus' commentary on the widow's might in the Gospels. So this is all a picture of what Nehemiah's generosity looks like. Now I want to go on and for the balance of our time together, I want to question why. Uh, Why was Nehemiah so generous? Uh, Exceptionally generous. Uniquely generous. Uh, What made Nehemiah tick? What makes uh, generous people tick? What makes them generous? And I want to suggest what we see here are two motives that are illustrated in Nehemiah's life and would to God they would take root and take hold in our lives. So here we go. The first is Nehemiah's reverence for God. And we see this in verse 15. It's explicit. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like my predecessors. I did not tax my people. I wasn't going to burden them. I was going to underwrite the costs. Now what's so very interesting, if you go back, we're in chapter 5 here. If you go back earlier in chapter 5, we discover that the reason other contemporary wealthy Jews of Nehemiah wouldn't give is because they lacked Nehemiah's reverence for God. So look at verse 9. Oh, I guess we don't have verse 9. All right, we'll stay here. Hang with me. And we are told in verse 9 that Nehemiah calls them to account because they didn't, didn't fear 
God. And so when I put verse 9, the wealthy Jews aren't giving because they didn't fear God, the text says, and I put that together with what we see here in verse 15. I conclude that the reason some of God's people, we're talking God's people are generous and other people aren't generous, has everything to do with their view of God. <laughs> and to revere God is to live in awe of God, uh, to be blown away continually, chronically, by God's uh, majesty, his transcendence. It's, it's to love God, it's to submit to God, it's to adore God, it's to worship God. And when we put uh, what Nehemiah is telling us here uh, together, what we learn, and hear me in this, is that generosity is born in the womb of reverence. In the womb of reverence for God. And men and women, you students, this is just absolutely beautiful. In Isaiah chapter 6, it's Isaiah the prophet having a vision of God that is so incredible, he famously declares, holy, holy, holy. And we know that, but what we often lose sight of is immediately after this experience of the holiness, the authority, the transcendence of God, Isaiah goes on and says, here I am, God, send me. In other words, here I am, God, I surrender everything. So how do you know if you are a man or a woman uh, that reveres God? You know when his holiness and his authority is so overwhelming uh, to who you are as a person that you continually surrender everything to God. Each day, each moment. Uh, God, this is yours. Take it. In 1 Chronicles chapter 9, this reverence for God is revealed in the life of King David. When David is so overwhelmed by the presence of God, the love of God, uh, the, the, the goodness of God, the thrill of uh, the temple of God being built that David announces to everyone in Jerusalem that I'm giving the bulk of my treasures to the construction project of the temple. The bulk of all uh, that we have received in our victories, military victories, the bulk of er everything I have, it, it, it's going to the temple. And then David goes on and he doesn't ask people to give first he asked the Jews to consecrate themselves. Now, consecrate means to devote, to set apart God as number uno, number one in, in your life, in your heart. And as they do that, the people give as David give, gave. So how do you know? What does reverence for God look like? Well, from the story of David... Uh, you know you revere God when you so taste the love of God, the goodness of God, uh, the presence of God. And that experience is a reality in your life that that becomes the defining reality in your life. It's what we see in the first couple chapters in the book of Job. When Job loses the entirety of his children, the entirety of his fortune, 
And it's a wipeout that few of us in the West have ever experienced or will ever experience. But because of Job's conviction of the sovereignty of God, he announces publicly, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And what is Job doing? Job is saying, my confidence is is in the reign and the rule and the sovereignty of God in every single situation in my life. You know you revere God when you rest in the sovereignty of God. Now let me just take this a step further. We often talk about the lordship of Jesus Christ. We read in the Bible this wonderful term, Lord. And what does it mean for God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit to be Lord? Well, I want to suggest when we put these uh, three illustrations together, we begin uh, uh, to understand it. You see, when you believe in the holiness of God, the transcendence of God, the authority of God as Isaiah did, when you experience the presence of God, uh, the love of God as David did, uh, when you rest in the sovereignty of God over all situations as Job did, you're down the road to revering Jesus Christ is Lord. What does it mean for Jesus to be Lord? It means that he is the authority above us. He is sovereign over us. And he is present among us. And so Isaiah experienced the authority. David experienced the presence. Job leaned hard into the sovereignty of God. How do you know if you revere God? You believe in the authority of God and you obey him. You believe in the presence of God and you experience him. You believe in the sovereignty of God and regardless of what happens, you trust him. And then we move down the road to reverence. And I say this because, and forgive me, we don't have a generosity problem. We have a reverence problem. And uh, uh, when Jesus says, store up for for yourselves treasures in heaven, uh, Jesus is saying, give to the poor, give to the church, give to ministries uh, here and and around the world. But Jesus is saying it's not optional. It's a command. And the point here is, of Nehemiah in Nehemiah chapter 5 is generosity is born in and sustained by a belief in a big God. Uh, So if you're taking notes, write this down. Do you believe in a, are, are you a big Godder or a little Godder? And what does your generosity reveal? So let me go on. Nehemiah's primary motive was reverence for God, but there's a secondary 
very important motive here, and that's a compassion for people. Uh, here, it's a compassion for his fellow Jews. Throughout the Bible, uh, we see compassion expressed towards outsiders and insiders. Here, it's expressed toward insiders, and I, I, don't, want, I don't want you uh, to miss that. So Nehemiah has this incredible uh, compassion for people. And where do we see this? We see this at the end of verse 18. In spite of this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. Now, what does it mean the demands were heavy? It means that fellow Jews were struggling to get food on the table. It was a famine. It means prices were inflated. It means people were living in poverty. Uh, people were stuck, if you will, in low-paying jobs, and, and farmers had to pull back from their crops in order to build the walls. And it means that these people at this point in time, at this particular place in time, Jerusalem, were in a position where it was impossible to get ahead. It just wasn't going to happen. And Nehemiah, in compassion, realized the demands were heavy. So he helped them as he rebuilt the walls to protect them. And you know what's crazy for me, and don't misunderstand what I'm about to say, Jerusalem wasn't even Nehemiah's home. Yeah, he'd been living there for the last 12 years, but prior to that, he lived in the king's palace in the capital city of Persia. And we actually don't know where, after Nehemiah finished this, if we don't know if Nehemiah stayed in Jerusalem or went back to Persia. And I say that because in one limited sense, Nehemiah gained nothing personally from rebuilding the walls. In another sense, he, he gained everything. But what Nehemiah is telling us is he gave us life. He gave us wealth. Because the demands were heavy on the people. So John in 1 John chapter 3 tells us, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, there's the visceral response. How can the love of God be in that person? But he doesn't stop there. Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but let's be proactive. Let's love with actions and in truth. Let me give you a definition of generosity that I just love, that I kind of cobbled together from some different sources. Here it is. Generosity is your fruit growing on other people's trees. And I believe when you get that, it's a game changer. Generosity is your fruit growing on other people's trees because you love them, because you care about them. Compassion is using your position, your privileges to better the position and privileges of others. Adriana and Philip were uh, a young couple uh, working to save $20,000 so they could use that as a down payment to get into their first home. And the day came when they had set aside the $20,000. They began to look at houses. They found a house 
uh, they liked, but God had a different plan. Adriana had a very close friend, a, a woman that was going through a very difficult divorce. And she was falling further and further behind financially, falling into deeper and deeper debt. And one day, Adriana felt like God spoke to her and said, Adriana, I have given you $20,000. I want you to give 10000 of that to your friend. And Adriana really struggled. I mean, her husband, Philip, had been working really hard. He was uh, maybe going to be difficult about this. And so she got up the courage. She talked to Philip about it. And Philip said, immediately, let's do it. And they did. And they lost that house of their dreams. And there was a lot of disappointment, a lot of sadness with Adriana and Philip. But it paled in comparison to the joy of being a difference maker. The joy of seeing their fruit grow on somebody else's tree. A week and a half later, Adriana received a check for $10,000 in the mail. It was for work she had done that she never thought she would be compensated for. Now, I, I say all of this uh, because the point isn't uh, that if we give, we're going to get the same amount back. Uh, Ryan and I have given generously over the years, and it certainly often hasn't worked that way for us. So don't misunderstand. That's not the point. The point is that difference makers, disciples of Jesus Christ, understand that at the center of being a disciple, at the center of the work of, of restoration is that we are driven by a reverence for God and a compassion for God's people that leads us uh, to give sacrificially and sometimes even painfully. Difference makers aren't just prayer warriors, they're giving warriors. Because we see ourselves as the FedEx guy. You know, God has given us this storehouse of abundance. And we have this delightful opportunity to send packages of those blessings to other people. So if you will, we jump into our truck and we distribute the blessings that God has given us. And I wonder this morning, are you a giving warrior? Do you see yourself as the FedEx truck driver? And let me give you a couple of steps here if you do. Let's say, let's start at the beginning. I want to give, but I got debt, I got student loans, I've got this or that. Um, let me invite you to take a step. And that is begin by prioritizing the local church. I'm going to talk about the local church here just briefly. Begin by giving what you are able to give, but give. Give something. And let me go on. Uh, well, maybe you're a little further down the road. I already give but. Well, evaluate what you give and commit to giving a, a, a tithe, this Old Testament tithe that morphs in the New Testament and sort of becomes a baseline for proportionate giving or giving as we're able while planning on upping that or uh, doing different things with that. And then finally... Uh, Let's say you enjoy giving and you have understood this joy and it's something important to you. We'll continue to look for ways to grow. I mean, think about being radical. Think about being uh, sacrificial. 
But as I conclude now, I want to say to you what we're talking about here. This subject today, I know some of you feel like I'm stepping on your toes. I get it. Talking about generosity, talking about money is difficult. Because we've got all these different situations in life. I've mentioned debt. Uh, we have uh, problems uh, with our present, concerns about our, our future. But I want to say to you, the way we get to generosity, the way we get to being a difference maker, isn't by looking within. It's by looking away from ourselves as Allie began this morning and seeing the generosity of Jesus Christ displayed in the elements of the communion table. And when you fix your eyes on Jesus, it, it, it melts your heart and, and, and you want to give it. After all, Nehemiah's sacrificial generosity points to Jesus' greater generosity. And may we see that and may that transform us in every area of our life, including how we handle our wealth. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for all you have done for us in your son. For the, this incredible generosity that is ours in Jesus Christ. And as we move to the table, speak to us about this generosity about this love. God, open our eyes and allow us to see Jesus. Amen. And so now as we move into this moment, I want to invite you to thank God for his generosity in his son. I want you to ask God to make you more generous, to see Jesus more fully, more completely, more clearly. And let's use this time to focus on God's love, God's generosity, God's compassion in this son. We're going to distribute these trays. There are two cups, one on top of another. Hold them if you're visiting with us, and we'll take these elements together as a symbol of our unity in Jesus Christ. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, well, I want to invite you to come to Jesus Christ. Uh, but if you're not ready then just let these elements pass. And parents, if you have children here that haven't uh, come to Christ, just uh, use this as a teaching moment after and then invite them to, to come to Jesus Christ. So let's focus on Jesus now, just as Jesus has so lovingly focused on us.
So if you haven't done so, go ahead and separate the cup. Now this takes us back to just hours before Jesus Christ was crucified. And he was crucified because of our sin, because of our unbelief, because of our self-centeredness, because of our greed. So as we take this, these elements, this is an act of worship and it's also an act of confession. And, and we confess that we haven't lived as God wants us to live. We, can, we confess that there's things, idols in our hearts that shouldn't be there. And we beg for mercy and then we cast ourselves on Jesus' death and resurrection. And I want you to know that. I want you to feel that. I want you to believe that. I want you to experience that. So God gave us these cups so we could put something tangible and physical into our hands that we might know the reality of his love. And so during the course, near the end of the Passover meal, Jesus took the, the bread and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And taking the cup, he went back to the Old Testament, to the book of Jeremiah, and said, this cup is the new covenant. That's Jeremiah 31, new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so, Father, we thank you for Jesus. For the forgiveness that is ours in the Son. Bless us now. Amen.